a jewel of gold in a swine's snout. So is a fair woman, which is without discretion. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 22. The Tale of Jemima Petalbeck by Beatrix Potter. What a funny sight it is to see a brood of ducklings with a hen. Listen to the story of Jemima Petalbeck, who was annoyed because the farmer's wife would not let her hatch her own eggs. Her sister-in-law, Mrs. Rebecca Puddlebeck, was perfectly willing to leave the hatching to someone else. I have not the patience to sit on a nest for twenty-eight days, and no more have you, Jemima. You would let them go cold, you know you would. I wish to hatch my own eggs. I will hatch them all by myself, quacked Jemima Puddlebeck. She tried to hide her eggs, but they were always found and carried off. Jemima Puddleduck became quite desperate. She determined to make a nest right away from the farm. She set off on a fine spring afternoon along the cart road that leads over the hill. She was wearing a shawl and a poke bonnet. When she reached the top of the hill, she saw a wood in the distance. She thought that it looked a safe, quiet spot. Jemima Puddleduck was not much in the habit of flying. She ran downhill a few yards, flapping her shawl, and then she jumped off into the air. She flew beautifully when she had got a good start. She skimmed along over the treetops until she saw an open place in the middle of the wood where the trees and brushwood had been cleared. Jemima alighted rather heavily and began to waddle about in search of a convenient dry nesting place. She rather fancied a tree stump amongst some tall foxgloves. But, seated upon the stump, she was startled to find an elegantly dressed gentleman reading a newspaper. He had black prick ears and sandy-colored whiskers. Quack, said Jemima Puddleduck, with her head and her bonnet on one side. Quack. The gentleman raised his eyes above his newspaper and looked curiously at Jemima. Madam... Have you lost your way? said he. He had a long, bushy tail, which he was sitting upon, as the stump was somewhat damp. Jemima thought him mighty civil and handsome. She explained that she had not lost her way, but that she was trying to find a convenient dry nesting place. Ah, is that so indeed? said the gentleman with sandy whiskers, looking curiously at Jemima. He folded up the newspaper and put it in his coattail pocket. Jemima complained of the superfluous hen. Indeed. How interesting. I wish I could meet with that fowl. I would teach it to mind its own business. But as to a nest, there is no difficulty. I have a sack full of feathers in my woodshed. No, my dear madam, you will be in nobody's way. You may sit there as long as you like, said the bushy, long-tailed gentleman. He led the way to a very retired, dismal-looking house amongst the foxgloves. It was built of faggots and turf, and there were two broken pails, one on top of another, by way of a chimney. This is my summer residence. You'll not find my earth, uh, <clears throat> my winter house so convenient, said the hospitable gentleman. There was a tumble-down shed at the back of the house, made of old soap boxes. The gentleman opened the door and showed Jemima in. The shed was almost quite full of feathers. It was almost suffocating, but it was very comfortable and soft. 
Jemima Puddleduck was rather surprised to find such a vast quantity of feathers. But it was very comfortable, and she made a nest without any trouble at all. When she came out, the sandy-whiskered gentleman was sitting on a log, reading the newspaper. At least, he had it spread out, but he was looking over the top of it. He was so polite that he seemed almost sorry to let Jemima go home for the night. He promised to take great care of her nest until she came back again next day. He said he loved eggs and ducklings. He should be proud to see a fine nestful in his woodshed. Jemima Puddleduck came every afternoon. She laid nine eggs in the nest. They were green and white and very large. The foxy gentleman admired them immensely. He used to turn them over and count them when Jemima was not there. At last, Jemima told him that she intended to begin to sit next day. And I will bring a bag of corn with me so that I need never leave my nest until the eggs are hatched. They might catch cold, said the conscientious Jemima. Madam, I beg you not trouble yourself with a bag. I will provide oats. But before you commence your tedious sitting, I intend to give you a treat. Let us have a dinner party all to ourselves. May I ask you to bring up some herbs from the farm garden to make a savory omelette, sage and thyme and mint, and two onions and some parsley. I will provide lard for the stuff, lard for the omelette, said the hospitable gentleman with sandy whiskers. Jemima Puddleduck was a simpleton. Not even the mention of sage and onions made her suspicious. She went round the farm garden, nibbling off snippets of all the different sorts of herbs that are used for stuffing roast duck. And she waddled into the kitchen and got two onions out of a basket. The collie dog Kep met her coming out. What are you doing with those onions? Where do you go every afternoon by yourself, Jemima Puddle Duck? Jemima was rather in awe of the collie. She told him the whole story. The collie listened with his wise head on one side. He grinned when she described the polite gentleman with sandy whiskers. He asked several questions about the wood and about the exact position of the house and shed. Then he went out and trotted down the village. He went to look for two foxhound puppies who were out at walk with the butcher. Jemima Puddleduck went up the cart road for the last time on a sunny afternoon. She was rather burdened with bunches of herbs and two onions in a bag. She flew over the wood and alighted opposite the house of the bushy, long-tailed gentleman. He was sitting on a log, and he sniffed the air and kept glancing uneasily round the wood. When Jemima alighted, he quite jumped. Come into the house as soon as you have looked at your eggs. Give me the herbs for the omelet. Be sharp. He was rather abrupt. Jemima Puddleduck had never heard him speak like that. She felt surprised and uncomfortable. While she was inside, she heard pattering feet around the back of the shed. Someone with a black nose sniffed at the bottom of the door and then locked it. Jemima became much alarmed. A moment afterwards, there were most awful noises. Barking, baying, growls and howls, squealing and groans. And nothing more was ever seen of that foxy-whiskered gentleman. Presently, Kep opened the door of the shed and let out Jemima Puddleduck. Unfortunately, 
the puppies rushed in and gobbled up all the eggs before he could stop them. He had a bite on his ear, and both the puppies were limping. Jemima Puddleduck was escorted home in tears on account of those eggs. She laid some more in June, and she was permitted to keep them herself, but only four of them hatched. Jemima Puddleduck said that it was because of her nerve, but she had always been a bad sitter. I'm Ted. And I'm Maria. And welcome to Epigraphs. So this episode, we're <clears throat> going to deal with another, we're going to talk about another Beatrix Potter book. The Tale of Jemima Puddleduck, in case you haven't guessed by now. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, uh, we thoroughly enjoyed discussing Squirrel Nutkin, The Tale of Squirrel Nutkin, mm -hmm. and it's actually, I think, our most popular episode, which we don't have a large statistical <laughs> database, So, but we really liked it, and so I think we're going to keep on doing some Beatrix Potter books. Um, which are, I would say, almost uniquely rich for the, the length of stories that they are, and I think that that's what's given them such an enduring quality. Yeah, they, I mean, they're almost like fairy tales in mm -hmm. the sense that they have this sort of magnetic quality to children that I, most, I would say most readers, even adults, may not, may be hard-pressed to explain. Um, what's interesting... But may also experience themselves. Absolutely, yes. Well, no, so, you know, I read them growing up, and then with our young children, they're totally fascinated by them, and, and I've loved rereading them um, as, as an adult, and so... Spending a bunch of time with them, I think we're start. I'm starting to see some of the things that are going on there. It's so just, just like an interesting thought is that unlike so many of the fairy tales, which are pulling directly from this, the pot of stories, as Tolkien calls it, and on fairy stories, these things that have been kind of boiling in the human imagination for a long time, mm -hmm. they're a little bit more just kind of out of Beatrix Potter. Obviously, there's somewhere she's pulling more more directly from old fairy tales, but it's it's remarkable that she was able to write so many stories that are in a sense original that also tap into such a uh, such a richness such a deep such a they hit close to things yes would be how i'd say there, it. there's a a primal quality to them that you don't get in a lot of what we would call original stories so i i don't know sometime in the last six months i read jemima puddle duck to her children for the 15th or 20th time <laughs> and uh yeah, as these stories do, I, all of this stuff clicked in it, and so I wanted to I wanted to bring it up and talk with you about it. And so, I'll let, I guess I can start by laying out sort of what I see as sort of the story within the story of Jemima Puddleduck. Give us your your overarching theory, my, your okay, master plan. My master, my master plan for Jemima Puddleduck is that it is about it's about foolish women. <laughs> okay. And about how they can be destroyed or saved by different kinds of men. And so it's sort of this diagramming, if you will, of the relationship between men and women. Uh, with Jemima Puddleduck being almost a foil, mm -hmm. in a sense, against the two characters who are, let's say, almost caricatures. They're, or archetypes. Rather, they're archetypes of two different kinds of men. And I And just to... Be very clear, you're talking about the fox and the collie, I'm talking right? about the fox and the collie. And so, but there's a lot of, actually a lot of subtlety, I think, to the to the vision that she presents there of those relationships. So maybe we can, I want to just start walking through it, and I'm sure that all kinds of stuff will come up mm -hmm. from, let's say, almost from a symbolic 
a symbolic reading of it. So one of the things that I, even just in this reading through at the beginning of this episode that I noticed is that Jemima's story, there's this, everything set between the farmhouse and the woods. Mm-hmm. And so the farmhouse, let's say, is the place where things are ordered. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's an order to life and Jemima doesn't like that order, mm-hmm. right? So she has a place as a duck in a farmyard <laughs> and that's to be a duck and it's to dabble and it's to let the chicken raise your eggs. And she doesn't want to do that. She doesn't want to submit to what's going on. And so she goes off somewhere to do things the way that she thinks they ought to be done. Mm-hmm. And where does she end up in? But of course, the woods. So that right there is... A, okay, that's a classic <laughs> fairy tale thing. It's a classic fairy tale thing. and, and Although it, it is interesting. It's I, more than I'm a fairy tale though, yeah. I'm just point out some things as you're talking without having thought through necessarily <laughs> what, what they mean. Yeah. But... She does specifically go to a clearing in the woods. Well, so so it's been cleared of brush and trees. But what's growing there? Foxgloves. And foxgloves are deadly, and are they're also beautiful. Named fox, and they're also <laughs> named fox, and they're also beautiful. And it's funny that she thinks to herself that the wood looks like a uh, what's yes, the exact phrase? A, a nice, a safe, a nice safe place, place to raise her eggs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah what does it say it, it says uh she nice, thought it looked a safe quiet spot a safe quiet spot which goes like this is this is how you know that she's a foolish woman because she looks <laughs> because, at the list and says oh that looks like a safe quiet place <laughs> you know it's in, and it has just clicked in my head for the first time there's an interest you could actually compare this with um yes thank you absolutely <laughs> there's a lot of a lot of echoes there in terms of the story. I don't want to get bogged down into that comparison, yeah. though. So she, she goes to this place that is... So the clearing is the thing that kind of looks like a barnyard. It kind of looks like mm-hmm. a garden. But mm-hmm. it's not... It's sort of purposeless. Right? There's not... It's not ordered. And... Well, it is. But it's a... It's a sort of bare-bones, distorted order. It has a building, but the building is ramshackle. <laughs> Yeah, it has flowers, but the flowers are foxgloves. They're and they're very tall, and they hide the enemy. Right. Who is? Oh, where's okay? We can go there too. Okay. <laughs> well, okay. later. <laughs> so, so then she meets she meets the the, the gentleman with the sandy colored whiskers, which is wonder, wonderful because does it ever actually refer to him as a fox? It, it never does. It never refers to him as a fox. It does. Once, I think, refer to him as a foxy gentleman. As a foxy but gentleman. it never calls him a fox, and it also <laughs> never gives him a name. So, one of the things that I love is that he is, if you actually look at the book, he is dressed up in a suit. Mm-hmm. And none of the other animals besides the Sandy Whisker gentleman and Jemima Puddleduck are wearing clothes. And uh, we're just we're on a re- we're on a read through the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and one of Lewis's astonishingly excellent quotes, where they're talking about the chil- the Pevensies and the Beavers are talking about the White Witch, and they ask about her being human, right? Because the idea is that when Ad- sons of Adam and daughters of Eve sit and care parallel, then everything will be right. Mm-hmm. Shalom will come when man when man rules as God's viceroy. And they say, isn't the White Witch a human? And Mr. Beaver says, she doesn't have a drop of blood in her. And if human blood in her, she's from the jinn on one side and the giants on the other. And he says, 
anything that looks like a human and isn't, that once was a human and isn't anymore, or is going to be human and hasn't become one yet, he says, keep your eyes on him and your your sword loose. Mm-hmm. So this is the idea of the things that pretend to be a human and aren't are the things that are the most dangerous. Kep does not wear clothes, which is interesting. Uh-huh. Nor nor do the foxhounds. So there's this interesting contrast of the foxy whisker gentleman is, or the, the sandy whisker gentleman, I'm, I'm probably going to mess that up so many times in the next 30 <laughs> minutes. The fox the, is, he's exactly what he's not pretending to be. Right? He is, there's this... You mean he's pretending to be something that he's not. He's this, he, yeah, there's this total duplicity about him in which he's presenting himself as, as being civilized when uh-huh. he... Lives in a ramshackle hut made out of soap boxes and broken buckets. But he reads the newspaper. <laughs> he reads the newspaper. So he has. A, well, it's all about affect. Is I uh-huh. think one of one of the core things going on is and that she's swayed by affect. Yes. And that is the class. One of the classic, like symptoms of folly, is that you don't recognize things for what they are. Okay, so doc, Dr. Kudebeck, who's a p- philosophy professor that I really like, introduced me. I think that he's pulling straight out of Aristotle, and so you might be able to help me with this quote. But it's the idea that wisdom is to see... It's either the first principles or the highest principles. I think it's to see the highest principles and all else through them. Mm-hmm. So there's this sense of... And then this is just very well-trodden ground, but the, the connection between wisdom and sight. To see things uh-huh. rightly. And so, and then, but then you immediately get into, well, if, if you have to see things rightly, then there's this sort of implicit, implicit, it's easy to see things wrongly. <laughs> and or so, else it's very easy to be wise. <laughs> or else it's very easy to be wise. Which it isn't. Which, and it's interesting that Kep is specifically, it says that he, he has a, his, what is it, his wise? His, he puts his wise head on the side. His wise head to the side. And, okay, but. Kep doesn't even need to see it. That's right. He just needs to hear about it. Which is interesting because you can... Okay, so then so then that makes me immediately think of the Proverbs where there's all of... The actions of the foolish are held up to the wise as a source of wisdom. There's a mm. sense in which the wise can become even more wise even through the actions... Even, even by watching the foolish. And that's uh-huh. exactly what Kep's doing. He's able to see what is going on through the foolishness of... Jemima. Uh-huh. Okay, but we have actually gotten way off from your original okay. explanation. Okay, thank so you. let's go back and finish that. Okay, so so it's it's Jemima's in my reading of it, Jemima's desire to rule her own fate is what gets her into trouble. Right? She wants to be more than she's supposed to be, and she wants to have things ordered the way she wants them. She does she wants to do the whole job. She doesn't want to be dependent on anyone else. And she wants to rule. She wants to raise her eggs on her own. And so she goes and she goes out and she looks for a nice place where she can have some babies and somewhere good, someone who will who will take care of them. All right. So that's that's what the foxy the foxy gentleman, the sandy whisker gentleman, sets himself up as. He says, "Oh, come to my place. Come into my my domicile. Right. Mm-hmm. And I have all the things that a duck might need to make a nest: bags of feathers." <laughs> <laughs> So there's this wonderful thing where, like, Jemima signposts or red flags or whatever you call them, they just keep piling up in her life, and she cannot see them. Uh-huh. And it's like, why does this Sandy Whisker gentleman have all of these 
feathers that are just there for her. And I think about... And she never wonders. And she never wonders. And I think about, you know, the notion, for instance, of, like, a man being, like, good with women. And you're like, do you want someone <laughs> to be around someone as a woman who's, like, developed that experience somewhere? Mm-hmm. It's like, that's a bad <laughs> sign. <laughs> and so there's this... Well, in the sense that people use that phrase. <laughs> in the sense that people use that phrase. Absolutely. Not to be... To be courteous and wise and right in the sense of um being experienced right it's like that's not you don't want that to be going on so then she goes she lays her eggs and there's this i think one of the wonderful parts of the story and it reminds me of this other parable there's and i cannot remember the, the fellow who wrote who, who wrote this story he's a modern mathematician he wrote the book on anti-fragility at any rate taleb taleb is his last name I think his first name is Hussein. Anyway, he tells us he tells the problem of trying to interpret, to just go to the data and interpret and extrapolate the future. And so he tells a story about these turkeys that belong to a farmer, and the turkeys are plotting oh, yes. how much the <laughs> farmer loves him by the amount of food he's giving them every day. And they draw the line. And oh, he's just going to keep loving us more and more and more and more. Uh huh. And then a day comes that upends the entire narrative, and it's like. If you're not a foolish... Appropriately, this is the day before Thanksgiving. Exactly. So, if you're if you're wise, then you can kind of step out of that and see that there's a deeper pattern going on, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, say, the pattern of Thanksgiving or the pattern of agriculture. And what Jemima doesn't have is the pattern of, what are foxes? Yes. She has the pattern of, oh, he's been very polite to me. Now, you do, when you put it that way, I think you have to ask, well, why doesn't Jemima have the pattern of foxes? Mm. She's been in the barnyard. Yes. Her whole life. Yes. And so, there's a sort of trained naivete. Well, she's domestic. She's a domestic she's, she's duck. She's domestic. So, and so... <laughs> because wild ducks don't nest in the woods. Like, like they don't dress nest in a dry place. They nest near water, so that they can be safe. Or up in a you know, like wood ducks nest in holes in trees. But uh -huh. a a a wild duck is not going to go in the woods where any fox or weasel or whatever can come and just raid the nest. They're going to nest somewhere that they know is actually have. So anyway, I love that. Keep going. She's a domestic duck. She's a domestic duck, and so she. She's been kept from learning the things that would allow her to to successfully raise her family out in the wild. So, but it's it's this weird question of has she really become a different kind of thing? Is it wrong that she has been raised in such a way that she is unable to to be a mother and to keep ducklings, well, eggs warm and ducklings safe? Yeah, that, and you don't... Because it's not like she wants to go out and do something that ducks don't do. It's outside of her nature. Yeah. Yeah, it, that's interesting. The, there's an implication that it's, it's kind of hidden in there, that it's really just Jemima that doesn't get to sit on her eggs. Well, her sister says she doesn't want to either. Remember? Oh, that's true. Rebecca no, that's, that's very true. Yeah, Rebecca Puddleduck does say, yeah, just, is, is or fine. her sister-in-law. Her sister <laughs> Mrs. Rebecca Puddleduck, who is perfectly willing to leave the hatching to someone else. Yeah. So, well, it's, yeah, I mean, that, 
very do domesticity is an like the domestication not domesticity domestication of animals that's a, that's a whole nother i'm gonna go ahead my my gut is is that that's not something that's sort of supposed to play into the story i think that the implication is that the it is appropriate for a domestic for a barnyard duck to have its eggs raised by a chicken uh-huh Although it is very interesting that they let her raise her own ducklings at the end. Yes. And that she is semi-successful. Yeah. She hatches four of them. <laughs> and it's out of the and nine that she lays it, in the and first And lays nest. it on her nerves. Right. So, okay. So then let's talk about the <laughs> the so-called redemption arc for Jemima. because okay. <laughs> Because I think that one of the things that I really like about the story is that Beatrix Potter is not excessively hard on Jemima. No. It's actually, it's a very, I would actually say almost sweet view of it. Because it's her, it is her profound innocence and trust that gets her into a really bad situation. Right? She is, she's so ready to trust this foxy whiskered gentleman. Uh-huh. That she will just follow him to the moon, as it were, or onto his dinner plate. And... But, but it's not out of a corruption of what she is. She's not corrupt morally. She's just foolish. No, she's just foolish. And then it is that same innocence and natural respect for the, for the, the other animals yes. that she meets. And that even particularly, her. yes, particularly, it's, it seems to be her relation with the masculine that mm. almost eats her, literally, mm -hmm. and then saves her. It's, she's been in awe of, of Kep, right? There's mm -hmm. this, you know, you can, almost, you can almost hear the sort of barnyard crush. On Kep, the majestic yeah. <laughs> collie dog. And, oh, he's talking to me. And, oh, I'll just tell, you know, here's what's been going on, Kep. I'm so excited. And there's... <laughs> so, so it's her, her innocence saves her. Her, the, the cost, let's say, of her foolishness, there's a sort of a merciful cost. And that is that there's actually a third sort of masculine character in the story. And that's the fox dogs. Uh -huh. Right, so they're puppies. They're this sort of unbridled, unrefined, positive masculinity, in in my mind. Do you, do you see that? This sort of, I mean, they they just yes. feel like eighteen or nineteen year old boys who have all of a sudden like their bodies have gotten really strong, uh -huh. and they're like, oh, "Do you want me to pick something up? Like I can pick <laughs> things up for you. I can break things if you like." And I run into these these young, and they're they're right they're right in that transition point into manhood, or uh -huh. they should be. Now, what our society does men is another question, but that's this. But there's this sort of like they tend to break as many things as they fix. Uh huh. And I think they <laughs> play an important role in basically revealing to Jemima the the dangerous side, but they do it without again without really meaning harm. Yes. Like you said, they're unbridled. Yes. And so they do what they naturally do. They eat the duck eggs. They eat. They they beat the fox up and chase them off, and it's that. But it's that same thing that yes, exactly. And it introduces leads them to... <laughs> an element of experience in Jemima. Jemima goes home mourning the loss of her eggs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, and so the next time <laughs> in June, she doesn't try to go out again. That's right. She raises them in the barnyard, and I think, you know. It's not like she's learned wisdom. The obvious implication is that she's she's blaming her non-success on... Well, it, okay, it's, it's an interesting exchange there, or implied exchange, because she 
she doesn't blame it on her inability to sit, but she does say that it is something about herself that limits her Oh, that is interesting. I was, yeah, because I was, I had always looked at that and and seen it as this sort of failure to self-reflect. But you're right. There is, it's actually, but it is a move. She's moving towards seeing the issue as as being something that needs to be refined inside of her. She's starting to see her own limitations. She starts the story saying, I want to sit on my eggs. I want to do it all by myself. And she tries that. (laughs) And the experience, two experiences, in fact. The first experience in the fox's shack. Yeah. And then the second experience in the barnyard, she's moving towards an understanding of what she can actually do. Of what her her actual capacities are. Yeah. I really like that. Yeah, so... One of the things that I I like about this is that as soon as I sort of, let's say, moved it, transposed it into this this octave, or however however you want to say that, saw it this way... I, it immediately connected with some other stories. The the most obvious one, and I can't remember if I came to this or someone else that I was talking with, I don't think it was me, said, oh, that sounds exactly like Pride and Prejudice. With Georgiana Darcy. With Georgiana Darcy. I think that was our sister. Yes. And 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 so there's there's our citation for that one. It wasn't me. It was someone <laughs> else. <laughs> but Georgiana Darcy does this exact, the exact same thing. So she there's Mr. W- there's Mr. Wickham. He woos her. He has all the outward appearances of a of a of a of, of a, gentleman, a gentleman of a gentleman, right? He he wears the clothes and he says the courteous things and he ha- he's handsome. He has a handsome expression, right? He looks like he looks like he has this like he has virtue, mm-hmm. and but he absolutely doesn't. And Georgiana, being young, and there the implication is even less that she's foolish so much as she's just young and inexperienced, mm-hmm. and she thinks. That she can trust this man with herself, basically. Because in a sense, that's what Jemima's doing. She's trusting him with... She's yes. trusting the, the, the fox with herself and her her future. And so then when Mr. Wickham suggests that they elope, she suspect believing him to be good, doesn't think there's anything wrong. And you, please add any detail that you think to this, because you probably know the story much better than I do. She, she goes, tells her brother all about it because she doesn't see anything wrong with it. Well, her brother arrives unexpectedly. It's, that's it's, right. It's yes, kind of that's the, right. The same, the same story. Her brother arrives unexpectedly, and I believe that the phrase that Mister Darcy uses when he describes it is not able to bear the thought of grieving a brother that she had looked up to almost as a father. Yes, and so she tells him, she tells "Hey, him we're everything. running away." Yeah, and then of course he intervenes, <clears throat> saves her honor, chases Mister Wickham off, and. All of the events of Pride and Prejudice are kind of downstream of this because of the relationship mm-hmm. between Wickham and Darcy. But it's that that same pattern. And so, you know, it's interesting. Okay, right, so I'm, I'm a man and you're a woman. And so there's sort of, I think we come at this story differently in terms of what it means, which is uh-huh. for, for us, which is interesting. And so... We take different things away from it. Because... Yeah. So for me, it's like one of the things when I see that is, well, right, I need to be the collie dog. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and there's and there's two ways. It, it, it's just it's just it's interesting that there's kind of two ways to go wrong because for as as a man in the story, and there's not really a cult. There's not really the fox dog equivalent in um, in the story from Pride and Prejudice. But Wait, oh yes, that you don't have the foxhound puppies. Uh-huh. But there's this sense in which how could I put it? That's all. It's almost this like. 
well, it's almost a self-absorbed man- masculinity in that they don't see that they, not only do they need to like beat up the bad guy, but there's this, also this way in which masculinity has to be refined so that it can, what, protect, create space for, not break, mm-hmm. say the more delicate, the more, I don't even know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of falling in words. There's this quality of femininity in which it has to just be like, there's space has to be made for it. Mm-hmm. Well, it, to some extent, it is, in this story, it is the foolishness of some women. Yes. And it's not specific to women, but because a, a lot of this, and we can talk about this afterwards, I see this as just the inversion of the opening chapters of Proverbs, where you have the youth Excellent. called by yeah. Lady Wisdom and, you know, the foolish, adulterous woman. Yes. So it can play either way. But mm. true men who are behaving rightly and women who are behaving rightly do not take advantage of the folly of others. You have to leave space for other people not knowing what they ought to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, so it's interesting. I'm going to, taking that, I'm going to, I'm going to read into, I'm going to, I'm just going to go ahead and take Kep as a very wise character. Mm-hmm. Not merely as the wisdom of, I need to protect Jemima from the fox. But then he goes and finds the puppies. He goes and finds the puppies. It almost as though he understands that she needs to learn from this. It can't be that she's delivered with no consequences. Oh. What do you think I, about that? No, I don't buy okay. that. He just, need, well, he just wants backup. He wants backup. <laughs> I don't think the one collie dog. Now, he, it does show his wisdom in that he is he doesn't try to do everything himself. He goes yes. and gets the creatures who are specifically bred to help him with the job that he needs to do. Yes. So he's bringing people in to do their jobs. And it specifically says that the puppies eat the eggs before he can stop them. That's very that's very true. Yeah. Okay, I, I like that better. Well, and so then, then you have the weird sort of valence of the fact that, um, right, dogs are still predatory. Mm-hmm. And they're very, you know, they're obviously they're the domestic, they're the domesticated uh, descendant of something very much like a fox, right? So like a wolf. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's, it, it's not so much that their nature's changed, but it's just oriented, right? So mm-hmm. it goes from being predatory to protective because that's what a collie dog is. A collie dog is a, it's a herding dog, right? So it's, its purpose is to order and protect animals that have a hard time doing that on their own, yes. <laughs> let's say. It's, I think, very significant that Kep locks Jemima in yes. before they yeah. take on the fox. Yes, yes, that that's excellent. I, I'm just going to throw this out because I, I don't, you maybe, you, maybe you'll just say, well, of course, these kind of similarities exist. But, I mean, I keep thinking of the first two contos of the, Divine, of the Inferno. She ends up in this dark wood, and then she's trying to get somewhere that she wants to go, and she's driven into this place of despair by... The fox, and then the let's say the greyhound. Right there's this whole prophecy about the greyhound coming and running the fox off that Virgil has. <laughs> I it's don't just, th- actually, I don't think that Jemima is ever aware enough to be in despair. That is true. Yes. <laughs> well, she's protected from that. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's just. It's just this. Now I'm just getting. I think. I think this is almost more of like we just seeing how there's these kind of these really deep archetypes. I'm not uh-huh. at all. I don't think I'm even trying. I'm not even trying to say it's the same story. It's just interesting to see the way that these kind of same archetypes play together in, in the human imagination on, uh-huh. 
Well, I mean, because they're born out of the, on to some level, because they're born out of how you live life, right? Especially, you know, especially it, before a hundred years ago of the common experience of being in a barnyard surrounded by the woods mm-hmm. with your animals, your, your domestic animals around you and their wild counterparts out there. And then they play out these dramas, let's say, in our stories, kind of embodying these, these, these aspects of reality. Oh, wait, say that again about the wild animals. So you have your counterparts out there yes. living out these stories. Say, say it one more time. I said you have the domestic animals that live with you and then their wild counterparts out in the woods. And then they come together and play out these dramas, these these stories in, in the human imagination. Kind of embodying these aspects of reality. Did I hit Can on we? some... I think so, but I don't know what it is yet. <laughs> okay, Excellent. This idea of domestic and wild counterparts. Yes. And we talked at the beginning a little bit about Jemima sort of wanting to take on the role of a wild, her wild counterpart. Yes. Well, then... Is there, do we do the same thing with people? Okay. In stories? Like, is this why we tell stories about things that are likely to never happen to us? Are we exploring our wild counterparts? Oh. Do we get in and do we get into trouble if we try to go out and and imitate and, that? And imitate them? I mean that we, you Except, you put like 15 things <laughs> in my head now. I, I mean know, I'm I'll the throw animals some... actually have wild counterparts, so it's it's not going to be a one-to-one correlation. Let's just, just get that out of the way well well i mean there is interesting i mean so the the, you know there is the the whole idea the truth that we are rational animals right Mm -hmm. so we are animals and that's i think part of the reason that it feels natural to us strangely natural to us to tell stories about ourselves through animals Uh there's there actually there's a real kinship there with the fox and the duck and the collie dog um you know the whole sort of calling animals cousin right they're not our brother and sister but maybe they're our cousin uh-huh. um that's one that i think that i think about another thing that that clicked in my mind with that i'm so i'm just kind of throwing some things out there that you might want to pick up another one is the scene in prince caspian where they meet the the, the bear that's gone bad inside yes and then susan and lucy have that deeply disturbing conversation about about whether the same thing could happen with humans they yes s- in our world that they still look like humans but they've gone wild inside they've gone wild inside but that i'm just i'm just throwing them out there okay and then my last one that i think i might really help is jordan peterson has a notion that we tell stories well that we have ideas so that our notional selves can die instead of us so there's this like what would i do if i did that what would happen Uh and he doesn't necessarily i mean dying is a worst case scenario but we run these stories out. Well, if I said such and such to so and so, oh, they'd be really mad at me. Maybe I shouldn't do that. That's if I said, much... oh, it, you know, if I said this to them, if I did that, and you and you, <clears throat> and so in that sense, you're kind of there's sort of this wilderness out in the future, and you throw yourself into that through story. Uh huh. That's much more like what I'm talking about than than the Narnia example. Okay. Although that's an interesting overlap. But when I say wild, I don't mean like wild versions of humans, but humans living a wild life. Well, we're certainly and we, so we well. I mean, that is okay. There's a lot. Are we go? Maybe we're looking more almost like the noble savage idea. No. Okay. This, I'm still trying to figure out what it is that I think you've tapped into for me. That 
I think we, especially these days, when we live, we generally live in very controlled environments. Is this like the There's disaster this... movie thing? Yes. Oh, okay. okay. So yes. it's the, I it's... think it's more like that. And we do that. So we we try to imagine what it would be like if <clears throat> if our circumstances went out of control. <laughs> yeah. Basically. And no. So what would okay. It be okay. Like okay. To, to be a person living in a wild environment, Jemima wants to go and actually be in this wild environment, and she's totally <laughs> unprepared for it. Well, right, and that's and so. The do we prepare ourselves for it? Why do we tell ourselves those stories? Why do we want to put ourselves in those wild situations? Well, I, I think you've hit on a number of things. One of them is, and and I actually love this because in that sense, Jemima Puddlelick is the anti-disaster movie, because it says. Because, right, so, you know, I Am Legend is sort of like the, almost in its title, it's the, the, the quintessential, it's the or it's the essential version of that story, right? Where this hopelessly multi-talented doctor, survivalist, you know, hunter, everything guy is living in a zombie-ridden New York City. And we all, I, we all put ourselves in his place. We're like, oh, yes, like, I'd be the survivor. Uh-huh. Right? I'd, be, I'd be that guy. Where... You know, it's like, how many of us actually would make it? And the stats are, of course, obviously, like, totally against us because the whole point of these either apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic stories is 99.999% of people die, and we all think, yeah, I'm that one in a million, or Mm -hmm. I'm that one in 10 million, or whatever it is. So, there's this really healthy sort of humility to the story of Jemima Butteluck, which says, (laughs) no, don't be that guy, because Uh what's going to happen is you're going to land in the woods, and then the first thing that you meet is going to eat you. And so reflection on those kinds of stories may be an important part of us, like Jemima, starting to figure out our own limitations. Right. So so a couple of directions that I think you could go with. One is, if we are going to live, and I, this may be the I, my my gut tells me this is probably actually the most important one, and so maybe we can, to live in community with other people means yes. that you must control yourself. Mm-hmm. You don't get to say everything you want to say. You don't get to do everything you want get want to do. You don't get to take everything you want to take. It's not even just that you have to control yourself, but you also have to depend on other people. Yes, Jemima's absolutely. Also learning to it, depend on people. It's control and dependence. Mm-hmm. It's being. Well, it's controlling yourself to to fit in with what's going on, and then to be dependent. And both of those. Well, both of those are deeply uh, humiliating. Mm-hmm. And and so because my mind always goes to either the divine comedy or monasteries, I'm going to go to monasteries with this one. And monasteries, you know, monasteries are really interesting in that they're such an extraordinary. They're like, they're like an edge case of that. Mm-hmm. The total you don't have you don't own you don't have any of your own money or possessions, and so you're totally dependent on the community to take care of those those needs. You don't get to just do what you want. Your your life is extremely structured, mm-hmm. right? You pray these times. You don't even get to usually pray what you want to pray. You pray what everyone's praying. And well, what what what's it? The notion of the monastery is that that somehow that is a profound way towards spiritual transformation. So I I don't know I. I I, I love for I'll just say I love this thread that you've opened up here, and I'm sort of trying to lay some pieces out there to see how it all fits, how it all, how they kind of speak to each other. Why is it that we? Okay, but then I'll then I'll throw out some something else. So I've had a couple of experiences where let's say I've been a little bit deeper into the woods than ordinary life mm-hmm. would afford me, 
and especially as a man, <laughs> there's something deeply um, satisfying and fulfilling about having had these encounters mm-hmm. with forces of nature, wild animals, um, wild men. So, you know, people who are acting outside of the bounds of what's acceptable. Mm-hmm. They're, they're stepping out of decency. They're ste- and, and being violent or rude or threatening or sneaky. And for me personally, those times where I've encountered them and, and let's, and overcome in some way, that's been highly gratifying. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've looked at those as being very positive experiences in my life. They're, there's an aspect of, say, terror to them, but they're certainly very positive. So they're, so I don't want to just cast it in this light of saying, well, we, we like those stories because of pride. I don't think that that's all that is because looking mm-hmm. at my own personal examination, it's like there's a lot of, I would even say that a, 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 prof- a real degree of self-mastery comes out of facing those circumstances. It almost seems like it's building margin for ordinary life. Oh yeah, no, I think that's that's really good. Yeah, well, and, okay. And for you, for you in particular, or really for anyone whose role it is to protect others in any, really in any sense in ordinary life, that 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 encounter in the wild zone gives you additional abilities that that feed back into your ordinary life. Yes. And it, so, okay, so to go take a Lewis example again. Yeah. In the end of the Voyage of Dawn Treader, when they are watching the under the undersea world. Yeah. And <laughs> this isn't the point of it at all, but you know Lucy's figuring out, you know, how the world works and she says that their their hills are like our, our valleys. valleys and it's the it's the dark, deep places where you ride off it's it's the whole idea of knight's errand knight's errand and the hero's journey yes and then you come back for rest and peace yes so i and i just as an aside because you brought up that excellent point about the inversion of jeremiah puddleduck versus the first chapters of proverbs and i would point out this notion of being a protector is actually Mm -hmm. not in any way exclusively masculine i just think that the domain of protection is different and it largely Yes. Is largely different. And it may be that those wild zones are particularly important for the masculine protector role. So I'll, I'm going to throw out my, my first, the way I personally view this. Because there's a necessity to, con- to let's say, and this is very Petersonian and fine, whatever, I'll own it. <laughs> this sort of needing to bring about habitable order from chaos. And... Mm-hmm. The, the way that I've seen this work out in my own marriage and family and then looking out around, generally speaking, it lies more with a man to overcome ca- external chaos and more with the woman to overcome internal chaos. Uh-huh. And so, right, so I'm going out and I am pushing trees over and cutting them down and throwing rocks around to the equipment and trying to keep machines from breaking down and on and on and on. While my wife is at home and what is she doing? She's forming children. Right, there's all of this chaos that comes out of our children because they're just little creatures and they don't know how they're supposed to interact together yet, or they do and they don't want to. They're all Jemima puddle ducks. They're all they're all Jemima puddle ducks, right? And and like when I think about when people talk about chaos and this notion of like say the connection between femininity and water and chaos, and people tend to see that as a negative thing. I I don't, and I'd say also from a phenomenological standpoint, what is like the most 
What's the biggest wild card that you could do? And that's bringing a child into this world because you have no idea who that child is going to be, mm-hmm. right? The potential of a human baby compared to an acorn compared to even, frankly, compared to a bomb. There's more potential in the proper philosophical sense in a hu- one human than there is in an atomic bomb. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about bringing chaos into this world that then needs to be formed, it's like the job of, of, of children, whether that's being a mother or being a matriarch or being an aunt or being a teacher, all of these, let's say, more feminine roles towards youth, there's this real shaping and ordering of children into something that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's how I see So I see that the, the sort of protecting, go, going into the chaos, going into the woods, and also being a protector, I think very much you can see that it's it's not split down a div- it's just oriented differently or like it, uh-huh. it it's instantiated differently and to tie both of them to tie this back to one of our earlier comments about wisdom and seeing rightly you have to be able in, in some sense you had to be able to see the chaos in fact and yes. your vision of what it could be mm. yeah yeah <clears throat> and i just i wanted to bring this up at some point and i'm curious to hear what you think of this so Jemima Puddleduck obviously has a a vision problem, and she, you know <laughs> she cannot see things for what they are. Can I and, can I just make a really interesting aside really quickly? Ducks don't have binocular vision; they have no depth perception, <laughs> and dogs do. Anyway, that's just an interesting little weird sort of where things tie together. Okay, so I've been paging through the book again, and have noticed take taking what you said about them wearing clothes mm-hmm. well jemima and the fox are the only ones who wear clothes but <laughs> jemima as, as you mentioned jemima only wears her bonnet and shawl when she's out of the barnyard which I mean, that that could be you know just she's gone out but the fox wears clothes in every picture except the one where Jemima Puddle Duck is not there. And let's when be frank, it's a little bit of a shocking illustration because he's always clothed. And you're like, why does he not have clothes on in this so picture? It's always when, struck me. When Jemima is gone and he's pawing <laughs> over her eggs, yes. he's not wearing clothes. So you can read that two ways, I think. Either there's a facade and yes. he's dropped it because she's gone. Yeah. Or... That's not ever actually how he looks. Mm. He he doesn't actually wear clothes. It's just how Jemima sees him. I like both of those. I don't want to have to... I don't know that they're really that different from they're each really other. They're really not. No. Although one is more intentional on his part, and he obviously does intend to deceive her. Yeah. Right. Well, and and that's, you know, again, we're, we see the story so much from Jemima's point of view, uh-huh. and it's this... Well, okay, so then there's this interesting... I mean, you're, you're touching on that really deep connection, too, between between seeing and speaking, right? And there's this... Mm-hmm. When, you, when you think, like, there's so many like, superfluous words that the fox uses. Uh-huh. Kep is very to the point. Yes. Right? In fact, we almost get none of his dialogue. We almost get none of his dialogue. And there's this, there's this what, suaveness to the fox's speech. Yes. He's always... he's And so there, you get this sort of picture of two foolish people courting too right because like back at home there are these you know 
he's a fox who eats eggs and then she's this sort of bar- silly barnyard duck and then they like dress up and goes talk to each other and so there's like some real possible some real possibility of something productive happening there uh-huh. um yeah i i that that all that's really that's really interesting did you have something else from the book that you were that you wanted to bring out? I did want to, before, before we get to the end, I did want to bring up this, maybe the most distressing part of it. <laughs> that she goes, it's like she's sewing her own funeral shroud. She goes around clipping yeah. herbs for her own stuffing. Like, why does it go that far? <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I mean... Beatrix Potter, for being a children's author, frequently goes that far. I'll say that. I mean, and, and okay, but it's a different. <laughs> yes, I agree. So somebody could come back and say, "Well, you know, it's nothing compared to Grimm's fairy tales." But there's a sort of openness there to, mm-hmm. you know, the wolf gets boiled alive or whatever. Yes. It's just different when you have someone contributing to their own demise that way. Oh goodness. First without, of all, I'm just I'm not knowing anything about it. I'm gonna throw out the the what should have been obvious to me before parallel between this and Little Red Riding Hood. Yes. That's okay, but no, that this is actually a great a great direction to go, although it's kind of a dark end, so we'll see. Maybe we can pull something <laughs> light out of this. Probably so because the story ends well. <laughs> but that's exactly what foolishness does. I mean, okay, like, there you go. I, I don't know that you have to say anything. More. I don't think. Yeah, it's like, what does foolishness do to you? Foolishness leads you to the place where you are clipping herbs for your own stuffing. I, yes, <laughs> yes. Okay. That's 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 you know. So let's take it. In, okay, let's try to bring in some of the light at the end of it. So I, I really love I really love the relationship between Jemima and Cap. Uh-huh. And it reminds me of a lot of other pieces of literature. There's some really interesting parts in That Hideous Strength where it talks about Mark Studdock and his body being wiser than he is. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And so there's this sense in which God has, God has blessed us by creating reality with a certain bent towards him. And it goes to show that, so Jemima's foolishness comes out of her desire for something good, which you brought this up at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Like she wants something good. She wants to be a mother and raise up children and like, and this is good. And so kind of undergirding the whole story of Jemima's foolishness and her near demise. And what you point out is a, let's a very clear eyed view of where foolishness leads. Um, is I would say something even more fundamental, which is this pattern of goodness. And that's, I think, why Jemima is safe in the end, because deep down inside, she's after good things. And so mm-hmm. she recognizes that in Kep, and it's her sort of girlish admiration for him mm-hmm. that saves her. And that's, it, it, it's this, that's actually a state, state of humility, I would say. In as much as we talk about her pride, her capacity to admire, her capacity to be yes. in awe, right? These are the things. Whether, it's her great virtue. It's her great virtue. Absolutely. She is ready to, it, it leads her a story at the beginning, but it's also the thing that saves her. And I think 
you know, I, I think, I think about a lot of my peers and there's this deep desire to, let's say, be small appropriately. And it leads them in very silly directions sometimes, like being caught up in really poorly written or badly told stories that are kind of just like floating out there in society where they just like, they're just hungering for something. And so they'll, they'll kind of take whatever stories thrown at them. But you can also see that as really as being such a grace. And it's mm-hmm. a thing that that oftentimes will pull them out of being at this really base, let's say, a base level. It 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 keeps them from crassness or just let's say money grubbing or in, any of these things that would keep their their eyes on the ground. And as much as it can lead them astray, it can also lead them towards towards salvation, towards admiration, um, you know. And and those are the kinds of things we should absolutely be. I think. I think about my own children and trying to cultivate in them, say, a wise wisdom, but not wisdom that's above everything, but like wisdom that's appropriately below things as well and can say, look up to greatness and recognize it as such mm-hmm. and admire virtue. So, yeah. All right. Well, we are having a Thanksgiving dinner a day late, so I think we need to go get ready to have some stuffing with sage and onions (laughs) (laughs) yeah but i think we're gonna try to do some more beatrix potter i think so yeah because these are these are lovely and uh we've by no means exhausted her treasure trove so until next time